You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for your patience. Welcome to tonight's event with Lea Ipi. My name is Susanne Kalutza, and I am CEO here at the House of Literature. A book discussing the concept of freedom, a memoir from Albania's communist regime and fall. This sounds like something that would be slightly heavy and difficult, read from any other author than Lea Ipi. In her memoir, Free, Coming of Age at the End of History, she definitely translates, which is definitely translated into Norwegian by Inge Sverdesson-Holms, Ypi has created a vivid and often witty portrait of her childhood during Albania's communist regime and its fall, showing great attention to detail and filtering the events through her own eyes as a child. The clash of ideologies and dramatic changes are rendered with room for nuance and complexity, and even some of the darkest moments reveal its absurdity and humor. In a society where biography and history is everything. What do you do at the end of history when your biography turns out to have been a lie? Today, Lea Ypi is Professor of Political Theory at London School of Economics. Her memoir, Free, was awarded the Ondaatje Prize and named one of the best books of 2022 by both The New Yorker and The Financial Times. At the House of Literature, Ypi will be joined in conversation by Marianne Martinsen. Martinsen is an author of both fiction and non-fiction books. Her background is from politics, and she represented the Labour Party in Parliament between 2005 and 2021. Today, she works for Finance Norway. Please give them both a warm welcome. Well, Leah, I'm going to use her first name. Thanks a lot for, for joining me here on, uh, on stage, and congratulations on this remarkable piece of work. Uh, this is a story that unfolds on, on so many levels. It's a memoir, uh, it's a story about you, your childhood, your teenage years, it's a story about Albania, but most of all, at least the way I read it, it's uh, a story about what it means to be free the conditions for, for true freedom. Uh, when I grew up, Albania was a country that we knew nothing about. It was like a blank spot on, on the map, a country completely isolated from any other country in the world, something mysterious or almost exotic. And I'm going to ask you, Lea, before we enter into conversation, to do a reading. Great. Thank you very much. And thank you very much, everyone, for being here and for inviting me. So I came to Norway the first time, I think, after 2000, when I was already an academic. But the bit that I'm going to read from the book is about my first encounters with Scandinavia <laughs> when I was a child in communist Albania. And so I'm going to just read the one page in which Scandinavia appears explicitly in free. <laughs> and it's about the tourists that came to Albania. A tourist never came alone. Instead, they always appeared as part of a group. Years later, I discovered that the groups were of two kinds, the realists and the dreamers. The dreamers belonged to fringe Marxist-Leninist groups. They mostly came from Scandinavia. 
and were furious with the social wreckage that was called social democracy. They brought sweets to offer locals who were rarely accepted. They worshipped our country as the only one in the world that had managed to build a principled, uncompromising socialist society. They admired everything about us. The clarity of our slogans, the order in our factories, the purity of our children, the discipline of the horses who pulled our carriages, <laughs> and the conviction of the peasants who traveled in them. Even our mosquitoes had something unique and heroic. <laughs> the ways of their blood-sucking which spared no one, including the tourists themselves. These tourist groups were our international comrades. They wondered how our model could be exported. They always waved and smiled, even from a distance. They believed in world revolution. Then there was a second group, the restless Westerners, bored of the beaches on Lake Balaton and in Bali, moaning about how Mexico and Moscow had been invaded by tourists. They had joined niche clubs and exclusive tour operators. They now sold them the ultimate exotic adventure, a place in the heart of Europe, just over one hour by plane from Rome and two hours from Paris, a place nevertheless so remote with its hostile mountains, its dreamy beaches, its inaccessible people, its confusing history and its complicated politics that only the most spirited traveler would dare to make the trip. They came to crack the code, to discover the truth. But it was a truth that they had, they had already agreed upon. They had talked about it while sipping cocktails in Bali and downing shots of vodka in Moscow. The truth was political. They had no political views, but one. Socialism was contrary to human nature, anywhere, in any form. They had always suspected it, now they knew it. They waved too sometimes, they didn't smile so often. They also carried sweets and wanted to talk. Sometimes they managed, the next time they tried, nobody returned the wave, nobody was interested in sweets. They would never be able to guess if the locals who shared their views were random passers-by or secret service agents. It could have been either. They knew it would be hard to tell, but they always tried. Wow, thank you. I must say I'm quite curious if we have someone in the in the audience recognizing this Scandinavian tourists. I'm sure there are, and I love them because they were actually the first people I met. The first people you met, because you grew up with this perception of Albania's fight against the imperial West and uh, and the revisionist East, and you were like a true believer in the system. You were a pioneer. But there was something strange about your family. You so much wanted a picture of Uncle Enver in your living room, but your parents kept telling you that they had to, to find the perfect, nice frame for it before they could put it up, and it never really happened. But when did you first get this sensation that there was something not quite right? Yeah, so, uh, the, so the sensation came before the knowledge, and I grew up with these two uncles, none of which was a real uncle. One was Uncle Stalin and one was Uncle Enver. And I think the first time I got the sensation was actually when the second uncle died, Uncle Enver. And I remember sitting in front of the television on the day in which the funeral happened, and it was a very somber atmosphere. There was rain and there was this television commentator who was describing the death as the 
worst tragedy to have happened to our country and how, you know, but we still had to be strong because it was this combination of mourning on the one hand and socialist optimism. You still had to give people hope for the future. And, and I remember being really taken by this description. And at one point, my parents started talking about the funeral music which is not um, communist, uh, well, in Albania in general, people, when, when someone dies, they, there's a 40 days of mourning, it's a very sad thing, you're even culturally not really meant to make, you're not meant to smile, you're meant to be like keeping your, and so I thought, well, why are they talking about the music? And they were, then my parents started having a fight, my father was saying it's an Albanian composer, my mother was saying you have no idea about music, and so there was this kind of slightly comic scene in the middle of this very tragic, what I thought was a tragic event, and that was one of the first times where I didn't know what was going on, but I remember thinking that there was something unusual about my family, or that there was something I was embarrassed by, the behavior of my parents in front of what I thought was, and I was five and a half, and that is also my first political memory. Mm. You also had a lot of relatives going to different universities all the time. That was and that at was very, <laughs> and at very strange age, some of them. <laughs> yeah, well, so one of them was my grandfather. In fact, we always talked about how my father had grown up without his father because his father had to go and do research at university for 15 years. And I was surrounded by relatives who always talked about universities and X went to this university and Y went to this other university and this person dropped out and this person stayed on to teach and so on. And my entire life was shaped by universities. It's probably why I became an academic because it's kind of was, <laughs> it stayed in me for such a long time that you had to do something with it. But eventually um, I discovered only when the regime felt that universities were, yes, educational institutions, but a very special kind. Very, very special kind. Uh, many readers will think of this, uh, this book of yours as a biography, but the term biography has a very specific meaning. It's, it's a fundamental part of your, your childhood, that, uh, that term, biography something diffuse but very important. Yeah, that was another, actually, the, another mystery was the meaning of this word, which was another word that I kind of grew up with and which people talked about, and were, there was always an adjective qualifying it. And so people talked about clean and stained biographies or good and bad biographies, or if I made a new friend in school, people would ask, what is that biography like? And if my parents wrote a document for work, they had to write a piece of paper on what their biography was. But it was one of these terms where you don't ask what does it mean because it feels really stupid because people are talking all the time about it, just like with the university. So you should know. You should know. And so you never ask the question, well, what is a university or what is a biography? Yeah. And it turned out that the biography was what shaped the place of people in the world and determined who they were and what they're going to in, be. In what way? So my family came from uh, both sides of my family, my mother's side. They were both class enemies or so-called class enemies but for different reasons. So my mom's side, they were old property owners, and on my dad's side, they were part of the intellectual aristocratic elite. Both these sides had opposed the communist revolution, but for different reasons. And the biography was basically what position had someone taken in the class struggle? And that determined what you would become, whether you were allowed to study a subject that was a tr someone who could be trusted to sub study a subject. So my parents, for example, they were not allowed to study humanities because the idea was that only someone who would be trusted by the system could study philosophy or politics or be part of uh, more uh, a different subject. And so they were only allowed to study hard sciences, though none of them studied the hard science that they wanted. And so the biography was something that you, it was like your, your visit card to the world something that you presented yourself and explained what position had your family taken vis-a-vis -vis the system and how did you inherit this position and how did it make you who you were. And so 
I grew up, I remember asking my grandmother, what's my biography like? And she said to me, well, your biography is as good as it gets. <laughs> and I, by, which, by which she meant, as good as it gets, given a family like ours. Uh, and, and it was only after the, again, after the regime fell that I discovered that uh, my family were the kind of class enemies that I had grown up to despise. But with your bi- biography, with, um, biography, if the regime hadn't fell, what would your future have looked like? That's a very good question. I think if I had been lucky, I would have ended up being like a chemical engineer or someone, an engineer in a mine. So if I had been allowed to go to, univer- to university, like the real university. Mm-hmm. So I might have ended up in either university. <laughs> I might have ended up in the real university and hopefully kind of if, that, if things had gone well, I would have ended up being an engineer or some kind of hired scientist, not a humanities person at all. And if, if I had had the temperament that I have now, I probably would have ended up in the other university. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, this is this is such a fun book. Like uh, like uh, Susanna when she she introduced you said, uh, and a lot of reviewers also highlight your your wits and your your sharpness. And I totally agree. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, really d- delightful to to read it. Uh, and from time to time, your writing takes the form of absurd comedy. I would say, for instance, uh, one episode I laughed so hard uh, when your when your mother dresses up for a group of French female politicians that is coming to your home to visit her because she has entered politics, and she ends up receiving them in this lace nightgown. <laughs> it it's hilarious, but there, there there's also something very painful about this story and about many of the other stories that you that you tell and as a reader i sometimes felt kind of insecure mm-hmm. am i allowed to, to to laugh for this do you want us to laugh mm-hmm. um yeah because there are different ways in which you can see that story so one about one is the obvious one which is what it was so people in albania in the 90s they actually didn't know what Western fashion was, and so everything that was different from what they had had before, and the the form of kind of women emancipation in communism was one where slightly where women was represented in a slightly more masculine model, and so becoming more feminine was almost a form of opposition or showing of, of kind of criticism or departure from the past. And so, and, and then, you know, anything goes. And so my mom thought, well, there were these Western visitors, so they will probably appreciate if I turn up in this kind of Western-type satin nightdress. <laughs> and, then my, and then the Western visitors came, and I remember my dad went to the kitchen, and he was saying, why are they all wearing Maoist suits? Because they were all wearing this kind of... They were all wearing these kind of charcoal gray suits and they seemed very austere and all the same. So they were kind of somehow there was a mismatch of stereotype. But, but, but there, the, were, there, there was a mismatch on several On several levels. levels. <laughs> and, and, yeah, and, yeah, I mean, the, the, then the story continues that then they asked my mother if uh, she had ever experienced harassment and she doesn't know what a harassment, she didn't know what harassment was. And then when she eventually, because my grandmother was translating for French, And my mom, my grandmother explained in Albanian, and she said to them, "Oh yeah, of course, but I always carried a knife," and, <laughs> and which, which is true. She did carry a knife for, throughout her youth, and she actually even used it. And then she was explaining how she used it, and then these women were slightly kind of receding back in their chairs as they heard the story of how my mom. So, so at one level, yes, you are. It, it is supposed to be funny, but at another level, it's also about how symbols that you take for granted are appropriated in different contexts, both political and cultural, in different ways. 
And that's okay too. And I think in Albania, and humor also plays that role. In communist Albania, when there was no political expression and there was censorship, humor was a form of dissent. And often in contexts like that, humor is the only weapon that you have to show that you actually disagree with something, is to ridicule the other when you don't feel that you can ridicule them or you can criticize them directly. And incidentally, it's something that we still do with people from the West if they come to, you know. What, 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 what uh, figure that you kind of ridicule is Vincent from the World right. Bank. Exactly, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. An expert on transition societies. Yeah, I laughed at him too. I have to admit that he 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 arrives in your neighborhood shortly after the regime fell, uh, and your father, a CEO of the local port, he became part of implementing some of the structural reforms after after the transition. That was really hard for him, wasn't it? It was very hard because he was had always thought of himself as the victim, and he was, throughout communism, a victim of a system. And then suddenly he was in a position of responsibility as part of a turning of tables, and so the idea was that the families that had been persecuted by the regime now had to be put in key offices. And But he was also, by nature, unlike my mother, not a free market libertarian who thought that, you know, everything you do will be fine and the market will absorb the consequences. And so he was in charge of sacking Roma workers from the port because the port was modernizing. And incidentally, this guy, uh, uh, Vincent, who we called the crocodile because he always had a shirt with a crocodile on, uh, he was come, he had come to advise on the transition. And basically, the advice was to implement what was called shock therapy, which was to ask enterprises, state enterprises, to privatize and also cut costs where they couldn't privatize the port because it couldn't be privatized directly. And my dad was basically in charge of sacking a lot of people. And he found that excruciatingly hard because he didn't think that this is what the transition had been about. Mm. So he, yet, he was sacking them in the name of freedom. He was meant to sack them. He never managed to sack them, actually, because oh, he, he was constantly fighting and not signing. And it was every day was this kind of anxiety. I mean, maybe he did sack someone, but overall, he didn't do the thing that he was meant to do. And so he was caught by these two kinds of obligations. On the one hand, the obligation that he felt to, he had to these human beings who would lose their jobs and therefore find themselves without a living. And on the other hand, the obligation to the World Bank and to the state and to his job, which was mm, to... To uh, Which is, I think, what most people in capitalist societies feel like. You know, they are trapped in this system where they have to do certain things. They don't necessarily agree with them, but they feel that this is their role, is to just implement the rules and, you know, not think too much about the costs because they will be absorbed by some process or other. Mm. One of the most disturbing episodes in the book, in my opinion, is when some of these people show up in your garden, yeah. you know, crying and begging him not yeah, to Yeah, that was always... I mean, that was a daily it. occurrence. So that's, I only describe this one episode, but actually this was a daily occurrence. And, and what was also shocking was, and I don't know if it was Albania or if it was part of kind of Ottoman culture that we feel like compassion and somehow, and what was really shocking was the difference between how my father experienced this process and the experts who, when he went and said, but look, I feel very bad, I can't sack these people. And he was saying, well, this is shock therapy. This is what reform requires. This is what we did in Bolivia. And my dad was like, well, I don't care what you did in Bolivia. This is... <laughs> so there, there was this recipe about what the transition required that was applied everywhere in the same way by people who just thought about generics, who didn't think about specific cases. They only thought about what is the rule, what does the rule book say? 
And that was the case of the crocodile and the and also the criticism of the crocodile, actually, that everybody knew that this is what they were meant to do. And I remember people in my neighborhood were always having these gossip conversations about how much does a crocodile earn at the end of the month <laughs> and, you know, all these kind of discussions around. Yeah. But to, to, to your father, this was wrong. But but one of the most fascinating things that you, you describe uh, is how people seem to have no trouble, you know, greeting each other with a fist one day and then with a wee sign the next day. So you had this effortless transition, at least that's the way you describe it, from serving one set of ideas and then suddenly serving something completely else. Yeah, because in some ways I think that is what a dogmatic subservience to the rule entails in a way. So there was a kind of adoption of communist rule with a degree of cynicism. So this is what the system requires is that I raise a fist and then the system changes. And for most people, what the new system requires is that you raise the V sign. Mm. And for the majority of people, this was just adaptation. Mm. And in part, I mean, I use that story and many others in the book to talk about the difference between real freedom and ideology and how there is a difference between the philosophical idea of freedom and how the states interpret this idea and the way in which people on the ground understand it and implement it and make it part of their lives. Mm. I think you're going to dive further into that a bit later. But but you, you also write about how the party was replaced with international society and civil society, and corruption became the new fashion word. Yeah. Yeah, I have a confession to make. <laughs> in, in the year, I think it was in the year 2000, I, I traveled to Albania as part of a European Social Democratic Youth delegation uh, to tell uh, young Albanians that corruption is bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, <laughs> I think I think other Westerners have done worse things to Albania. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, but but you know, the, this was only ten years after after the tearing down of the Berlin Wall. Uh, it was the end of history, you know, uh, and and we had this perception that that our societies, the Western liberal societies, we represented the the end point of this transitional path that every country would follow, only at different paces. Uh, and it was extremely easy to get funding for democracy-building activities in, in Eastern Europe. So, so we did a lot of that. Uh, I went yeah. to Lithuania and to <laughs> many well, other places good, as, well, <laughs> as well. <laughs> yeah, but that, that means that there was the same degree of cynicism about that here as over there in Albania, because it was also very easy in Albania to get funding by international NGOs if you just said, I'm building civil society and I'm fighting corruption, and I'm just, you know, there was yeah, a script. Here's your money. <laughs> there was, and there's your money. And there was a kind of script around, you know, what transition requires which is what, how all these old concepts were abandoned of the party and the dictatorship of the proletariat and socialism. They literally were wiped out of the vocabulary. It's not that people rebelled against them. They just got, they were just gone. And mm. then there was this whole new language around fighting corruption, which incidentally I think is still there, around transition, fighting corruption, building mm. civil society. And there is a degree of cynicism that goes with knowing that you are dependent on a group of states or foreign powers or, or even just a kind of general configuration of politics and, and economics outside Albania, but that your country now is in a historical predicament where they depend on that for funding. Mm. And so you just, it's like you learn a new language and you use that language to get what you can to survive, which is what most people did. I mean, I remember, this is not in the book, but one of my most revealing experiences as an academic was when I was in Budapest at some point and we were discussing the Bologna process with a bunch of Brussels, you know, people who were talking about the Bologna and how to adapt the Bologna process and so on. And then the Brussels people left 
and it was just the Hungarians, the Bulgarians, the Albanians, and we were all talking amongst ourselves. And then the Bulgarian guy said, well, you know, we survived the Ottoman Empire, we survived the Nazis and the fascists, we'll survive the Bologna process. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Wow, that's, that's a great story. But this is after the Brussels people had left, and I was like, why didn't you tell them? You know, this, is how we, this is what we think about the Bologna process. It would help them to know that this is how you think. Yeah, sure, sure. But, but what I find hardest to, when I think back on it now is, is this feeling that we had of, of a moral higher ground, in mm -hmm. a way, that it was only, only natural that I, as a young social democratic Norwegian, should go to Albania, a country I knew nothing about, to tell future leaders of Albania how things should be done. Yeah, but, the, but it's, the, but it's the, absurd. It is absurd, but then the even more absurd thing is that Albanians know that, but yeah. they won't tell you that this is, you know, that they know that that's what you're doing, that you have no idea about Albania and you're going to give the recipes and so on. And they're like, oh, well, whatever, we'll sign and then we'll figure it out after, which is in part what, the, what exactly the obstacle is still right now, that you don't know. I mean, so there's a form of reverse resistance in a way in that ironic, humorous attitude, which is, I'm not criticizing you directly, which is actually inherited from the communist system. I'm not criticizing the government directly, but if I make a joke or if I, uh, if I talk about, if I find a code around it, just like with the prisons, you have a new code now, and that will be, uh, that will enable me to survive this new environment. And people have no idea, you know, they think they go and preach Albanians about freedom and democracy, and the Albanians go, yes, yes, and everyone will, well, we, we've done something really useful. Mm. Yeah, I, I, can, I can tell you that this specific workshop on anti-corruption <laughs> turned out to be a disaster. Uh, one day, I think it was the last day of the workshop, one, uh, one of, the, of the young men, a boy actually, uh, a participant at this workshop, asked me to go down to the beach with him. Uh, and I did, and he started to point, you know, there was a lot of construction work going on. Um, and he told me that nothing of this economic activity would have occurred without corruption. And I was like, uh, I, I was totally shocked. Uh, until I realized that he said that to provoke me. Of course, he didn't mean that the, the future economic system of Albania should be built on corruption. But, you know, he, I think it was, he, he was sick and tired of, of uh, you know, Western NGO representatives with smug faces coming to Albania to, to you know, do something good in the world. Mm. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, it's possible that it was both. That it that was both a form of criticism, but it's also possibly quite true that a lot of the economic activity that emerged yeah, from the transition <laughs> was built on illegal. But this is the other thing. I'm one of the part of the book in which I talk about all the things that emerged after 1990 as a result of the fall of the system, the collapse of the system. And I remember in my neighborhood, people were talking about X used to be a bus driver, but now he smuggles drugs, or Y used to be a farm worker, but now he's into sex trafficking. And all of these things, and I mean, this and they meant it when they said they were mentioned like normal occupation it's not they weren't joking about it. it wasn't it was just like you know he used to be a bus driver but now he smuggles people on boats to Italy and and I think the reason was that when you have this vacuum of jobs and the state collapses and there are no opportunities people just do whatever they can to survive and it's you have to, to you have to be in a particular position to be really moralistic about what's right and what's wrong and it's the same thing with corruption if you are in a country where 
people aren't really working and it takes a really long time to build institutions. This whole category of corruption is a mystery in a way, and it's not really clear what work it's doing, because I think in the US there is institutionalized corruption in the form of campaign funding, funding for example. So you have a political system that is rigged at the law level. And yet you get all these US people who come to Albania to tell Albanians, you know, you should fight corruption. And I'm like, well, you've, you've made corruption legal. So how do you go and lecture an entire country about the fact that they are surviving in these circumstances by small bribes because the state is not paying enough or whatever? So it's a much more complicated process. And so a lot of these categories like corruption, transition, civil society, they don't really mean very much once you start scratching beyond the surface. Hmm. I've never felt more embarrassed in my life, I think, than that day down at the beach when I realized what what I was part of, and I, I, and I recognized the language uh, in your book, and I must say that added to my feeling of embarrassment. <laughs> but you, you were a teenager at, uh, at this time of transition, uh, and expected to, to embrace and enjoy the new freedoms, the new opportunities that the older generation had craved for, for uh, decades. But I, uh, I've heard you say in interviews that you didn't really feel that free. Mm. Yeah, I think it was, a very, it was very, very complicated for me because I, I had this childhood in which I didn't know. And so it was a childhood living a lie, but a relatively happy lie at that. So I don't remember anything particularly traumatic about my own experience and my own predicament. And by the way, this is quite a complicated thing to say in Albania because people have had very difficult lives during communism. So when I go around and say, look, I don't remember anything horrible. Like, I mean, of course there were cues and of course there was hardship, but you normalize these things just like my kids normalized when we were in California four hours in a queue in LA with a car. They didn't think, well, we need to change the system because we have to queue. Why do we have to queue for four hours in a four-line lane in LA? It's just the way the world is. So for the same reason, I was like that in communist Albania. And then I was told that this was all a lie and that now there was this new world of freedom and that my family had been this, but now we were on the process of recovery from that. And on the other hand, I had the impression that my parents had all these expectations around freedom, which with me, with my knowledge of after, I couldn't see it was the case. I didn't feel free at all. You couldn't go out after five o'clock because there were all these new dangers. I remember my grandmother was forcing me to eat because she'd heard about anorexia in the West, and so she was constantly bugging me with plates of food every two hours in my room, like, you need to eat, you need to eat, because she was completely obsessed that I'd become anorexic. I was a teenager then. And so at, at many levels, I didn't feel free. And so it was almost as though the roles were reverted. I had moved from this position where I didn't know anything during communism, but then I felt like I could see that this was not a free society under capitalism either. And my parents, who had known the truth during communism, were now living this other lie where they thought, well, this is just what freedom takes and what it mm. is, there's a cost to transition, but it's still better and it's moving towards a better world and so on. Yeah, and that, that cost, that is, that is an interesting topic because you were told that shock ter therapy would require some sacrifices, but that it would be for for the bet better in the long run. And yeah, and, it was, and there was also a kind of... The other problem was this generational burden, because I felt when I was a teenager, and I still feel that to some extent, that my parents couldn't have all these opportunities. So now you have to not just make up for yourself, because you have all these new opportunities, but you also have all their past on your shoulders that you need to make up for. And that was what I found really hard, because then I couldn't even say to them, look, I don't feel free, because they were like, well, did you want to be in a prison for 15 years? And you're like, well, no, I didn't. Of course But not. I don't want to be locked in my room either with someone who's bringing me food every two hours. <laughs> so it was like this kind of strange, um, yeah, it was this strange experience of, 
personal discomfort in one system but not in another, and yet knowing that the societal truths were very different. Mm. It seems like your family, and maybe especially your mother, found it a lot easier to accept the sacrifices required to become a liberal society than the sacrifices required to reach the transition to communism, which you longed for as a child. Well, my mom, because the world aligned with her view of how she thought about human nature, about everything. So my mom came from this property-owning family, and it was one of these things where, you know, Marx says this difference between class interest and class position. They are not always aligned, so you can be a member of one class, but you don't have to have the same interests as the class that you're in. But my mom, in my mom's case, her class interest and her class position were exactly the same thing, because she came from a property-owning family, and she thought that a free society required the guarantee of private property and the guarantee of a just transfer of private property from one generation to the other, and that everybody deserved this, and all the state had to do was to guarantee this. And so after communism, she was chasing her family properties, which were returned, some of them, to her family and trying to sell them. And so she was in, she was in her utopia of freedom, in a way. Mm. And, the fact, and she always hated the state and hated interference and hated bureaucracy, which is also partly why, even though she was a leader of this women's organization, she actually hated the quota stuff and the formal stuff, because she saw that as a way of it's kind the of state funny. getting power over individuals. And she was like, women should just, this is a tough world. It's women, men against men and women against women and everybody's like the state of nature. And the state needs to hold back because when it gets in, it makes everything worse. And since we're in the state of nature, you just need to learn how to fight. And that's how she was and what she taught me. Every time I had a problem, she was like, we just need to fight. Wow. <laughs> it's harsh. You need to have a knife. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you are referring to Marx. And uh, uh, we, we have to, to talk about this, because you, you, you ended up becoming a professor in political philosophy, even though your father told you explicitly to stop philosophizing. Uh, and you lecture the theories of Karl Marx. You do understand that some people find that a bit odd? Yeah, that was part of the reason why I actually started writing the why the book in the end takes this more confessional form that it takes. So I didn't I didn't want to study Marx actually. In fact, when I started studying philosophy, I kind of made a promise to my dad that I would not study Marx because for them, again, it was this difference in generational perception. For them, philosophy was Marxism-Leninism. There was nothing else to it, and it was just the things that they had been taught in school and basically just Lenin and Stalin and all this kind of dialectical materialism literature, and. So when I wanted to study philosophy, my dad was like, you'll be like a party school teacher, which I think I kind of am now, because I'm teaching Marx in some ways. You know, he wasn't that far off the truth. But basically, I picked philosophy at a point in 97 when there was a civil war in Albania. The school, the school was completely closed. There was a state of, of emergency in the country. People were shooting. There were Kalashnikovs falling down my window as I was Kalashnikov bullets as I was preparing for my final year exams. And I remember I thought a really long time about what I wanted to study at university, and literally nothing made sense because when you're in this state where. And I mean, I don't know how many people have read the book, but basically this was a result of a financial collapse, which had then provoked a political collapse and so on. But you're in this country where you think, okay, what should I study? Should I study law? And there is no law outside. It's the, it's, that really is the state of nature. Or you think, well, should I study economics? And it's actually all come out of the, the pyramid scheme fall. And Or should I study medicine? And there's people just literally dying outside your wind. So in a way, all the, what my parents called professions, none of them made sense. And the only thing that I kept thinking about, well, I, all I had were questions in a way. And 
I was like, well, what is the field that will ask, will enable me to ask better questions? It's philosophy, because philosophy, you always have a lot of questions and you don't have that many answers. So that's how I picked it. And I only got to Marx from the history of philosophy, but trying to really stay away from it for a very long time and being very reluctant. And then I had this very complicated encounter with it, because, of course, Marx in the West is one thing, and the experiences of the East are a very different thing. And when you study Marxism, you don't really think about it as lived reality. And so all the experiences of Albania, of Eastern Europe, for my Marxist friends, they were like, well, that wasn't really socialism. And you could play that game with everything. I mean, I could tell people in the US, well, that's not really capitalism. And that happens to every system of ideas. But somehow that is what made me interested in it. It was exactly this kind of divorce between how people in one part of the world were just reading it as a Bible or as a kind of philosophical text. And in another part of the world, they're completely uninterested in the philosophy because they thought they knew all there was to know about it because of their lives. And I was interested in the kind of spaces in between. Mm. I'm no expert in Marx, and I've just read parts of it as a, phil a philosophical text. Uh, but uh, but uh, materialism is a very fundamental concept in in his works, and with your experiences as as a teenager in mind, where you experience this different kind of unfreedom, would you say it's fair to talk about? an opposite relationship between classical political freedoms and uh, material conditions for freedom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, and in, in part, what the book tries to do is to talk about these different ideas of freedom as different people understood them, where someone like my mother, for example, only thought about, political, uh, thought about freedom as political freedom. So for her, freedom was if the state doesn't tell you what to do, what to think, whether to manifest or what to wear, that is freedom, that's all there is to say about it. And in the case of my dad, he was much more interested in the material conditions, the fact that there is no freedom to live under a bridge. If you're living under a bridge or if you're unemployed, then you're not really free. And all of these things and depend and on the kind of constraints. And where do you position yourself in that landscape? So my, my grandmother is a character in the book that I think has the conception of freedom that I am most attracted by now, philosophically. She has this idea that freedom is not really just about political opportunities or not just about kind of social conditions. It's something that is connected to us being moral agents and doing the right thing. And we know we always have that capacity because we always have a capacity to make moral decisions. And from that moral capacity, you get to see the divorce between ideology or freedom as interpreted for you by some authority or other, and the way moral freedom feels like when you're making these moral decisions. And it's in that space that you kind of build social criticism. Now, my grandmother, she wasn't into the social criticism part. That was my own addition after. But mm. my grandmother was really... The thing that stood out about her was she'd had this very uh, privileged, aristocratic life with lots of wealth and titles, and she'd mm. lost everything. Mm. And then became the wife of a political prisoner and was deported. And whenever I asked her, well, that must have been really hard, after she told me when I spoke, and she was the most important person for me also because she looked after me and my parents were always working. So when I asked her, well, that must have been really hard to live this oppression. And she always said, well, I was never oppressed. And I always thought, what does this mean you've never been oppressed? I mean, you've spent most of your life chasing prison camps and bringing, making food for my grandfather. And she always said, well, there is something about the human being that no matter how totalitarian and how oppressive a system is, they never lose, and that's the capacity to be moral. And it's then that you know that you still have some dignity and some freedom left within, within really. you. So that was really important for me, and it's partly what kind of made me interested in this philosophical German tradition of thinking about freedom um, 
And then, as I say, then I kind of develop it a bit more to think about social So that's how you got into to the works of Kant. Yeah, absolutely. So it was like, you know, for Kant, but my grandmother, she'd never read Kant. She had no idea. It was just... And I think you don't need to have read Kant to actually understand that. It's a very basic moral insight. You just, you just get it. You know, you feel, yeah. I have a duty and I know what my duty is. Sometimes I don't feel like doing it, but I know what it is. And that's, I think, the case for most people, actually. That's how they feel about obligation. And in knowing that that's their duty, they also know that they are free. They could do it if they wanted to, even if they turn out not to do it. But that's the space between following your instincts or your inclinations and knowing what's the right thing to do. And I think that's very important because that's, I think, the start for everything that is transformative and regenerative and, and critical of society. Mm. So, so what you really learned from your grandmother was to see this relationship between the moral dimension of freedom and criticism. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think she wasn't, because in the end for her, the, the, the criticism was, I think, something that I then thought about myself later. In her case, it really was just the person. It was the person that, it was almost like a stoic idea. So the stoic is, you know, the slave is always free, even in a prison. And she had had such hardship that for her, she had ended up with this idea of freedom that is, I just bracket, I shut out the world and I retain my moral integrity. And it doesn't matter, they can spit to me, they can hit me, they can deprive me of everything, but they won't deprive me of this inner moral core. But I think that's not enough in society. You can't just limit yourself to that because then the world just goes on as it goes on. And, and you also kind of need the material kind of conditions to, to feel secure and thereby free. Or well, I mean, so I think, but I think it's important to... That insight, I think, is really important as a starting point. But then it needs to become something... You have to think about the world as well. You can't just think about you and your integrity. It's kind of... In the end, I think it ends up being a bit selfish to just stay in that dimension and completely isolate yourself from what goes on. And I think somehow that needs to be, it's really important. And I think it's really fundamental to distinguish between freedom as an idea and the ideology of freedom that we all live under. If you don't ask yourself the question, is this actually a morally free society? It's a society that tells me all the time that I'm free. But look at all the cynicism that surrounds us and look at all the hypocrisy and look at all the kind of false values and so on. We know there's something morally wrong about the world that we live in. But then the question is, that, so that's what gives you the, the standing point to criticize it. But you can't just then shut it out and say, well, then I just keep my moral freedom. Mm. I've heard you say that you find criticism to be the foundation of possible alternatives to both the dogmatism of your childhood and the skepticism that characterized your teenage years. Yeah, that's right. And I think, I mean, I'm still in that space in a way. Yeah. Um, and it's a kind of tricky place to be because... Skepticism is very unsettling. You, it's not, there is not much hope. If you're, it's, and I still have a very strong skeptical instinct because it's, it's this disbelief. Once you've, like I say, once you've been lied to once and you discover it to be a lie in, this, in the form in which I discovered it, it's really hard to believe in a truth again. And in fact, this is what I think one of the problems in a lot of Eastern European post-transition, post-communist societies, people don't actually hold that much belief. They are very skeptical. They're really, all my friends from Eastern Europe, very nihilistic. You know, they're like, it's all bad. Everybody is corrupt or everybody is kind of, they, there, there is a sense in which skepticism doesn't give you a lot of hope for the future. On the other hand, you don't want to be dogmatic either. You don't want to just hang, hang on to some ideal of, for the sake of it, it's also a difficult place because then you suspend criticism and you suspend judgment. So you have to inhabit this space somehow between dogmatism and, and, and skepticism, which I think is what criticism is. And then from there, somehow it's hard, but construct a process that moves you forward. Mm. You, you live in Britain now. Would you say that is a 
free society? No. You have to explain. <laughs> I, mean, I don't think, look, what does, a, what does a free society mean in the absence of a free world? How can a society, how can, I mean, can you really say that Norway is free in a world in which Norway is? In a world in which the dynamics of the world shape what goes on in this country? Even if you think you are free, you've got to feel guilty about that. So all of us who are, and I'm in a privileged position, so I can't say that I don't have material freedom or that I don't have opportunities or, or that I'm censored in any way, so I don't think, I hope I won't kind of get out and be arrested for what I'm saying and the fact that I'm not in a kind of Probably free not. society <laughs> and so on. But the point is that these are freedoms that are asymmetrically distributed. They're not distributed the same way for everyone, and they're certainly only part of a kind of core of countries. They're not everywhere. But what does it mean for, for yourself, for your future, for your children to be in that kind of world? So how can anyone be free in a world that is not free? Yeah, that was my question. It's a great question. <laughs> uh, our time is almost up, uh, but I want to end by, by taking us back to your childhood. That uh, ten-year-old, I think, Leah, who, who clinged herself to the statue of, of Stalin uh, in the opening scene of the of the book, um, and you discovered that that it wasn't only that your your parents didn't want a picture of Uncle Enver in your living room; they they hated the system. They were former aristocrats, intellectuals, so the the class. Enemies that you that you learn to be to be wary of were actually your own family, but they didn't tell you in order to protect you. Uh, and you have talked about uh, the impact this had and maybe still has uh, on you. But now, as as an adult, do you think your parents were right to keep you in the dark? I mean, I don't know what other choices they had, really. So I don't think I ever thought about why did they not tell me the truth. I think one of the reasons, of course, there were several reasons for why they kept me in the dark. One of them had to do with just it being unsafe for them, so they could have been arrested. And so I probably would have rather lived with my parents than with parents in prison. So, you know, the cost of the truth was too high. But at another level, I was also, and I am actually grateful for that, I was a really ambitious and committed child who really believed in this kind of common good and in being a good citizen and a good pioneer and so on. And if my parents had told me, as some other people did with slightly older children, they told me, like, look, it's just no point being ambitious in this society because your political position will set a limit to your ambition at some point. That would have killed everything in me that then made me the person that I am now. So I think it's good in a way that they sheltered me so that I could then have this experience, so that I could then come out of that experience in the way in which I, 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 I think I'm grateful for having been protected in a way that didn't completely kill and didn't turn me into this completely cynical person who just, you know, doesn't care about the collective and just thinks, you know, it's all a war out there. And I didn't think that. And I think it was part because I believed in my childhood that there was something greater than the individual and that we all had to struggle for. And I still have that conviction. And so the system has changed, but I'm grateful that they didn't kill it. Mm. Do, you, do you sometimes miss your, your childish dreams, your perceptions of what society was like? Well, I mean, who doesn't miss their childhood? I think uh, we all miss childhoods because every day of our life is a day closer to death. So, of course, we miss the point where we were a bit further away from death. I mean, assuming we had kind of lives that were more or less, um, yeah, with surrounded by love and with protective families and with sort of an, an, a sheltered family environment as I was. 
I didn't have, as I, we, I didn't grow up having stuff. We didn't have stuff in Albania, and children just didn't have the things. That, I didn't have as a child all the things that my kids had. But we had a lot of fun. And we, you know, we made up stuff. We made up games. We had lots of freedom in the streets. Um, we had a lot of love from people. And I think all of those meant that it was a secure, sheltered childhood. And yeah, I miss it because everybody misses that kind of childhood. It doesn't matter where you are. I think that will be your last words for now. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Lea, for this, this most enriching uh, discussion. And applause for Lea. You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotheque.